Hello friends, welcome to our Powers Within podcast. I'm your host, Chaz Smith, and my mission for this podcast is to inspire you to take your power back and to realize that you are the healer that you have been looking for all along. I did want to start today's episode by saying first how much I appreciate your continued support. If you are listening and you find the content that my guests share with you all valuable, please consider leaving a five-star rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts or share your favorite episode on social media and tag me at Our Power Is Within. You can also always click the link in the bottom of the show notes to the virtual tip jar. And speaking of the tip jar, I did want to send another huge shout out to Mary, Kathy, Karen, and Lisa. Thank you all for your support. I appreciate every one of you. So, For this week's challenge, we are going to base it off today's episode. We are going to do uh, somatic tracking. Um, If you're not sure what that is, I will, um, you will learn more about it in today's episode uh, from our guest as well as I will post a link in the show notes that uh, does go over some um, basics on the somatic tracking as well as a guided experience through it. Uh, that will be a YouTube video from a previous guest, Jim Pruzak. And let's see, um, there's lots of ways to do this, as you will hear later today in the episode from our guest, Tanner. Uh, he gives some great examples that he will explain way better than me. Uh, so I will let him explain them, but just keep an ear open for when he talks about uh, doing a movement that brings about the unpleasant sensation and doing tracking while you're doing that, as well as somatic tracking while watching a funny movie. So yeah, he has lots of great ideas and examples that you will hear later on in the chat. And I just encourage you to explore uh, explore (laughs) a variety of options and see what feels most supportive for you. So as I already mentioned, our guest today is Tanner Murtaugh. And Tanner and I have such a fun and informative chat that I'm really excited to share with you. Uh, Tanner has his own story of recovering neuroplastic pain, which also is known as mind-body syndrome or TMS. And through his um, healing experience and his recovery process, he's learned and studied so much in the world of pain science and shares lots of this good stuff with us today. We explore everything from a more in-depth understanding of neuroplastic pain, the main ways that it tends to manifest in our bodies, why creating safety is so integral and important to our healing, and as I already mentioned, some wonderful ideas on somatics, plus so much more. So let's go ahead and get to it. All right, Tanner, thank you so much for being here with me today and for everybody who is listening. Yeah, it's lovely to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, you know, I really love uh, for when I'm bringing kind of like a new person on the show, and I love to just have them start with sharing a little bit about their their story. And I know that you have your own neuroplastic pain and mind-body syndrome story, so I think that would be a really good starting point to kind of just tell us who you are and, um, yeah, what, what your own story looked and felt like <laughs> that brings you to where you are today. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so... I am like a therapist that specifically works with chronic pain that is neuroplastic or mind body syndrome typically. Um, And so, yeah, like I do have kind of my own story of how that kind of developed. 
And so this was a long time back. It was probably about, oh, I always forget the time frame, but it was probably about a decade ago um, around then that I started to develop like chronic pain symptoms. And so what kind of took place first for me is, you know, I was in university at the time and I remember I was like, I'm a very active guy. So I'm always, um, doing different things and, and different activities. And at the time, you know, me and my friend were training for a triathlon together. And so I remember running like a lot at the time I was probably running, you know, 50, 60 kilometers a week. And, you know, all of a sudden I started to develop pain, like in my right knee. And I did the normal that most people would do. I went to physio, I went to see a chiropractor, I iced it and rested it. And really, no matter what I did, it wasn't getting better. And really, like my chronic pain journey lasted about four years, like approximately. And so over those four years, you know, my pain spread truly like wildfire throughout my body. So first it was, you know, both knees started to hurt, then both shoulders started to be in pain. Um, and this spread to my arms very quickly. And I remember, you know, at times like I was struggling to push open doors. I'm, I also play um, guitar and was playing in some bands at the time. And like, even that was difficult. Like even playing guitar was really hard. And my main pain symptom that I think was kind of the most debilitating for me was my back. And so I can't remember the time frame exactly. It was probably two years into having chronic pain, my back started to hurt. And it was kind of like my, my lower back all the way up to my upper back. Um, and my hips kind of joined in on that. And it was really debilitating. Like I was struggling to walk around. I remember at the time, like uh, at one point I was working at a university wellness center and even like had like a special parking pass so that I didn't have to walk very far and trigger the pain. And I think like lots of people, I, I tried every treatment imaginable um, for my body. Like I did physio, chiropractor, massage. I was on a whole host of pain medications and like truly no matter what I did, it wasn't getting better. And my, my story is similar in, to lots of people kind of in this mind body world in, in the beginning, it really began with, I kind of learned about Dr. Sarno. And so at the time, like I remember, cause my, my chronic pain was so debilitating that my mental health was really um, becoming worse kind of by the day. Like I was extremely anxious, extremely depressed. And I remember late one night when I was kind of frantically looking around the internet, trying to find like a solution to my chronic pain. I came across like a YouTube video talking about Dr. Sarno, uh, and TMS. And I remember, you know, like lots of people, when I first heard about his ideas, cause he really talked about how, you know, oftentimes chronic pain, um, is due to like feeling in psychological danger, right? So feeling emotionally in danger and not due to structural damage or disease in the body. And when I first heard about his ideas, I really took it like, you know, he's he's calling my pain fake. And, you know, well, we can talk about this today, but there really, there's no such thing as fake pain. Like all pain is very much real. Um, and then over time, I think just out of desperation, I started to use his strategies. And so I really... You know, at first I looked for evidence and I looked for evidence that my pain wasn't behaving the way structural pain typically does. 
And this took a bit of work because when you're so fearful and preoccupied about your pain, like I was, it's like, you're not, you're not really being too curious about it. And so that was the first shift. I just started to be curious and look for evidence that, you know, my pain wasn't behaving the way structural pain does. And early on, like that was really around like inconsistencies. Like a lot of time my back would hurt when I was sitting, but sometimes when I was relaxed and at ease, all of a sudden my back didn't hurt while I was sitting. Um, also just in the way my pain moved around, like it, it moved and spreaded kind of day by day to different places. And, you know, structural pain doesn't typically function like this. And my first real big moment where I kind of bought into kind of this mind body stuff is, you know, I was, I was working at the university, as I mentioned, and because my back hurt so much, uh, like in between sessions, in between like therapy sessions I was doing, I would like lie on the ground in my office uh, to just try and give my back a break. And I remember I, I was doing at one point this like hopeful meditation in between sessions and really, and I really got into it. I was really imagining, you know, my, my future life being pain free. I was imagining like my future children and being able to hold them and play with them. And I remember I got this kind of warm and fuzzy light feeling going on in my body and my pain just completely dissipated. Um, and all of a sudden I stood up and my back didn't hurt. And of course it did come back a couple hours later, but it was such a key piece of evidence early on for me because I realized like, you know, structural pain would never function like this. It wouldn't just take a break because I felt hopeful. Right. And, you know, over time, as I, as I started to recover and it took about three months for me to be primarily pain free. And all that I was doing was I was helping myself feel safe. So as I started to believe, um, you know, that I had, you know, mind body syndrome or neuroplastic pain, I started to feel safer and I started to be curious about my pain instead of fearful about it. And I processed, you know, my, my emotional, um, stuff that was going on. Like I went to therapy, I did a lot of journaling and I started to feel safer with my emotions. And as this occurred, you know, within three months, like my pain just steadily decreased. And I remember like at three months, like I was on my honeymoon and like all of a sudden I was running around and playing ping pong, um, which, you know, for myself, like I, I really do love ping pong a lot. And it was remarkable because, you know, ping pong is a lot of Jacob movements. It's a lot of running after the ball and there was no pain. And I truly, I, at the time, I remember being quite amazed because I couldn't believe that, you know, this could take place, that I could use these strategies um, and work on myself and work on my emotional concerns and my pain would just dissipate in this way. And it was re truly remarkable and that that really, you know, led my career towards this path and, and helping people in this way, because I know it can be truly like so healing for so many people. And, you know, as we learn more about the brain, we, we've understood that a significant portion of chronic pain is neuroplastic and is not due to structural damage or disease in the body. So that's kind of my journey, how I came to it. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So I have a few follow-up questions. Yeah. Okay. So first I know you did say that like your mental state started to 
take a toll eventually too, as the physical stuff did. But yeah. like, what was, what was that like for you to go from being this person who was super active where you're even training for triathlons to suddenly not being able to do these activities that used to bring you joy because of the amount of pain you were in? Yeah, it was very, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was very difficult at the time for sure. And, you know, as I lost more and more function in my body, like it, it just, you know, I, I was having a hard time handling it. Like I remember being severely depressed and like so many people, like even suicidal at points, just because I wasn't able to do anything that I really enjoyed and, you know, physical exercise. And that was, has been a big part of my life since, um, kind of early adulthood. And I think that was kind of the way I relieved stress in a lot of ways. And so when I lost that, I, it just declined so, so quickly. Um, yeah. And I remember like anxiety wise, like it, it was just constant. Like I, and, and so common with chronic pain. Right. But I was always thinking about my pain, um, you know, so preoccupied by it, like in this obsessive way and, and couldn't kind of get it off my mind. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's like not usually a surprise that like you get some pain. Now you're a little restricted, you're limited. Maybe you had to stop doing your triathlon training and that sends you into this like loop and then all of a sudden more pain comes and then you're going deeper in this mental loop because it's like the deeper you go, the more that more pain shows up, the more you're restricted, the more you feel like things that you care about are taken away from you. And you're stripped of like these things that bring you so much joy and like you said, stress relief, but the pain adds stress, but then inhibits you from releasing the stress. It can be um, a mess. Yeah, it really, it really can escalate quickly. And, Mm -hmm. you know, for a lot of people, you know, for myself, like at the time when I thought back, like it was clear that my life was stressful when my pain started to occur which is really common. Like it's one of the ways that neuroplastic pain can develop. Right. And, you know, so there was stressors, like I was changing my major in school and I was, you know, preparing to propose to my partner, which, you know, I was excited about, but still stressful and life was speeding up. But then, you know, over those four years, some of those stressors faded, but what happened is you're right. Like I got into this pain fear cycle, which is Mm -hmm. so common for people, right. Where, you know, I would have pain sensations and then be so fearful and preoccupied about it. And the more I did that, unfortunately, we know this, like when you fear pain, the danger circuits in our brain become activated and then more pains generated. And yeah. then you become, you know, more pain, more fear, more fear, more pain. And it's just this, you know, negative feedback loop that can last for years and years with people. Right. Yes. And so, okay. So I have a couple other follow-up questions still from the first part, but I actually want to ask this one first. Um, so what do you suggest now that you've lived this, been through this, healed from this, recovered from it, however you prefer to call it. And now you're a coach or a therapist regarding this for anybody who's listening, whoever, like whoever's lap, this podcast someday falls upon, what do you suggest for somebody, um, when, like, how do you suggest they first respond when they begin to notice pain in their body, even if the pain initially is from like an, an a fall or an injury of some sort, or they woke up and they, they wanted to blame it on how they slept, like however it shows up or manifests initially, what's the best way that we can 
um, yeah, just respond to this pain in order to avoid falling into that negative feedback loop and pain fear cycle? Yeah. And that's, that's a good question, right? And it can be, um, it can be tricky, right? Because I think we think about pain, like innately as human beings, when we feel pain, we, you know, it's terrifying. It can be very scary when that occurs. And so, you know, I always suggest, and, you know, in the therapy that I use, like pain reprocessing therapy, a lot of times what we have people do is start to view their pain, kind of what we call through kind of like a lens of safety. Because if we actually can, it sounds odd, but if we can actually start to feel safe while the pain sensations are occurring, then as a result, they can dissipate much quicker. And so when we talk about kind of like a lens of safety, this can be things like at first just being curious about what the sensation's doing, like really watching it, being mindful of it, it because you can't be curious and fearful at the same time. It's, it's not possible to do both those things. And so if we can get curious about it, we can watch it. We can, you know, if it's neuroplastic, we can give ourselves messages of safety as we watch it, reminding ourselves that, you know, the pain's only occurring in the brain, the, the brain's just misinterpreting things. And that I'm actually safe right now, because truly, like, if we understand, like, pain is a danger signal that our brain sends us, then, you know, the solution is really just moving towards safety. And so having this lighter, easier attitude about it is really what can help. And I truly, I acknowledge that can be a hard thing to do. Um, but that example I gave of all of a sudden when I became hopeful all that happened was my brain felt safe and the, the pain symptoms dissipated. Right. Right. Yeah. Now, what if though you like backtrack even more though, and like somebody legitimately has no clue at this point, like it's still too early to know, am I actually injured? Is this physiological or is this TMS or mind body syndrome? However you prefer to call it. Like yeah. what, how did, how did they respond? Right. Cause we all, we know, I know you know, probably know sometimes we really do start with a real physiological injury that mm -hmm. then the TMS or mind body syndrome kind of kicks in and what could and would heal feels to us like it's not healed because of that lingering mind-body neuroplastic pain that like persists yeah. long after the physiology is actually like already healed. Yeah. And you're right. Um, like one of the ways neuroplastic pain can develop is an initial injury. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, injuries, you know, are, and I usually remind people and every once in a while, when I have a little pain symptom come up, I remind myself that, even if it's an injury, like typically your body will heal, right? Like mm -hmm. human beings are amazing in this way. Our body is really robust. Uh, sometimes we forget that, but we, our body does have this amazing ability to, to heal. And so I, my, my recommendation is if someone did injure themselves and they want to avoid kind of their pain becoming neuroplastic, you know, after the injury is healed, Part of it is just, you know, reminding yourself that, you know, the pain, the injury does heal. Like typically most injuries will heal in the body in a few weeks to several months, they will recover. And even just reminding yourself of that, that the pain's only temporary, that it will pass eventually. Like all of that gives our brain messages of safety, right? That, you know, we will be okay. This sensation will pass. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something, that's what I do. If I have something happened, I always think, did I do something? Did I actually do something to justify a, a real in, acute injury? And, and, and if it's like, no, it's like, okay, well then this is likely mind body syndrome right now. But if there's a chance that, okay, you know what? I actually did do this, or maybe I did a little too much too fast. And, and, you know, realistically, there could be something physiological here. I always go back to, I think it's Dr. Sarno who's like, oh, um, even the femur, the largest bone in the body, you break it and it comes back stronger within six to eight weeks, it's healed. So I always, I set that as my parameter to my brain. Like, okay, even if I really did do something, everything heals within six to eight weeks. So I'm just going to be mindful of not overdoing it right now, but not fearful that I'm like suddenly experiencing a life sentence of pain. It's hard though, you know, in, I think for a lot of people I have compassion because look at what we're surrounded by. You, I mean, you hear it all the time. People, I have a bad back. I have a bad shoulder. Oh, my knees have hurt for 30 years. So unfortunately, even if we have a real injury, we hear so much, so much noise all around us. Like, Oh, I hurt my knees once and they've never been the same. So then we automatically think that that's our story and, um, getting out of that story and not letting that like kind of overwhelm us at the beginning and trusting in that body's ability to heal. Yeah. And you're, you're totally correct. And I, and I talk about this all the time, right? Like we unfortunately live in a society now that really doesn't believe kind of what we're discussing right now a lot of the time, right? Like that belief that our body will naturally heal. Um, Unfortunately, you know, a lot of people don't naturally believe because we are surrounded by it. And we know in the last couple of decades, like chronic pain has rapidly increased, right? And it's truly, it's not that anything has changed with our bodies, right? But it's just the way we think about our bodies, I think is partly to do with that. And so, you know, the, the main suggestion I have is just early on, it's really important to kind of watch, you know, the fear and preoccupation and making sure that doesn't get too out of control and just reminding yourself those messages of safety, right? That, and you're right. I, I, as you were talking, I was thinking too, like whenever I feel a sensation, I kind of tell myself whether this is, you know, I actually injured my body or this is just another neuroplastic symptom, like either way it will dissipate, right? Moving towards safety is going to help you in, in both directions in that way, right? Absolutely. So, okay. So then I want your insight on this because sometimes in some of the literature, um, especially early on in the early world of like understanding TMS, um, for anyone yeah. listening, tension myoneural syndrome, tension myositis syndrome by Dr. Sarno. Um, mm-hmm. We are taught like to, in order to actually send the message to the brain that we're not buying into this as physiological and we know it's mind body, we're not we're taught kind of to not um, cater to it or to not like still do the physio or do uh, the like treat it from a physical perspective. So what are your thoughts for somebody then who is still not sure like what it is and um, how they should be treating it? Um, Like how could they approach that when they're kind of in this unknown? Like do you find that they can say, hey, this might be mind body syndrome or not. And I 
trust it's going to heal and maybe I can still do X, Y, and Z to support that process that is physical. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah, I know what you're saying. This is a, a frequent conversation I have with clients. Um, and here, here's kind of my take on it because you're right. Like, you know, if we were talking to Dr. Sarno today, he was very strict in kind of his approach on this, right? Uh, like I think even at points saying like you need to stop all physical treatments right mm-hmm. away. Um, yeah. Which again, like I think there is some truth in that in the sense that it can reinforce that something physically might be wrong with the body, right? Mm-hmm. But alternatively, I think this also happens where, you know, I've worked with people and they've naturally very quickly just stopped doing everything. And what happens is then they don't fully buy in that it's neuroplastic yet. And then they just feel more in danger. And so it's tricky in that way. And my suggestion is that as I'm working with someone is first off, when I'm working with someone, we're just exploring it together, right? We're exploring like, are there exceptions? Is there, you know, especially when we do like techniques like somatic tracking, right? We're just exploring and over time, sometimes people's pain drops down during that. And that's a pretty key indicator that, you know, this is likely neuroplastic what we're dealing with. And so over time, as the belief builds and, you know, some of this mind-body approach starts to work, they naturally will feel safer to just slowly cut those out kind of in their own way, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm always careful not to pressure people because I know it can make them feel more in danger. But when I'm working with someone and they're doing, you know, chiropractic work or physiotherapy, I tell them as they're doing it just to remind themselves that I'm just continuing to do this right now because it's just helping my brain feel safe, right? Yeah, because that's good. Frame is is a big difference. It seems really like we're talking like semantics, but it makes a difference because you're not telling yourself like, I'm doing physio because there's something majorly structurally wrong with my body. You're telling your brain like I'm just doing physio right now, and over time I might cut it out, but I'm doing it right now to help me feel safe mm-hmm. as I kind of do this mind body approach. Yeah, I like that. And I exactly and and maybe even it's like, for certain things, it can be like, I'm actually going to go get this massage, not because it's going to heal me. But because for me, massage is very relaxing. And I know that if I can keep my, my being mind and body very relaxed, and, you know, um, calm and at ease, then I'm going to be in a like more parasympathetic and more able to heal, rest and digest. So I think that is so good to just safety, creating calm, like approaching these things as more of, um, yeah. And I love how you said, no, I'm just doing this for you brain. I'm doing this so that you feel safe. (laughs) That's exactly it. Right. And I think it just, it changes and reframes the message around it. Um, which can help, you know, help with kind of like a mind body recovery kind of approach. Right. Right. Now, okay. So when you have somebody that we're still kind of in this gray zone, not really sure, not clear, um, what is your suggestion for them as far as activity or movement? Like say that they had this pain and it is limiting them very much like your experience from doing something that they really loved or brought them joy. Or in some cases, somebody might be fearful they can't do their job, which is their livelihood. So- As they're kind of like, okay, well, one, I know my body heals. Um, two, I'm, I know that even if it's TMS, it's going to dissipate. But how do you help people to discern what level of activity they should still engage in and use of the 
part of the body that is in pain? Yeah, and that's a good question. Um, and so, as I mentioned before, like I do use like a lot of somatic tracking with clients, right? And so, somatic tracking, um, for those who don't know, like it, it really is like a technique that helps the brain start to feel basically safe and the fear reduces while you are observing the pain sensations. And so really we're just being curious, the slight and easy attitude as we kind of watch the sensations in our body, we're giving ourselves messages of safety, like reminding ourselves, like my brain is just producing this right now, like my body's actually safe. And then a lot of like, we call it positive affect induction with somatic tracking where really we're, it's just a fancy way of saying like, we're just doing anything to kind of lighten the mood as we do that. Right. So sometimes, you know, it's through humor. Sometimes it's just breathing and feeling the nice sensations as you observe those pain sensations in your body. And so the reason I mentioned this is because I use that to help people gradually expose themselves to doing movements that maybe they're fearful of, or that bring on the pain. Right. And this is gradual. I, I never rush people along in this. There's no pressure on my end. So, you know, at first it might be like I, in, in sessions before, I've had people slowly walking up and down the stairs as they're observing the pain sensations, reminding themselves that they're safe and they're trying to be in this kind of positive mood so they're not watching it too intensely. And over time, what happens is, you know, as they use somatic tracking with movement, what will occur is eventually, you know, we'll have this exception where maybe the pain's not so severe because the brain starts to feel safe. The brain starts to identify like I'm safe to do these movements right now. And so there's this gradual exposure that I'll do with people where, you know, at the tail end, sometimes in sessions with clients, um, like I've had people do like pull-ups um, in session as we're doing like this somatic tracking to help them feel safe as they start to do these movements again. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they're just, um, so it's like, oh, they're, they're, so they're doing the movement that maybe once before brought on the, the sensation that is uncomfortable or unpleasant for them, Yeah. but they're just being aware of the sensation, like rather than trying to escape it or be afraid of it, they're just noticing it. And you're, you said that you also use like breath or humor or things to kind of create this different association with it. Yeah, that's exactly it. So like we're trying to invoke like this, you know, this light and easy attitude while we're observing the pain sensations, right? So that can be in lots of things. I've had people do somatic tracking where, you know, as they're doing it, they're watching like a funny TV show or a comedy, right? And that's a creative way of doing it, but it's just, that's what we're trying to invoke, like this light and easy attitude because it's giving your brain messages of safety. And what happens is the brain will over time start to interpret things more accurately in the body, right? Because with neuroplastic pain, what happens is it starts to misinterpret safe signals coming up from your body as if they're dangerous. And so somatic tracking, even with movement, what we're trying to do is over time, the brain will start to interpret things more accurately in the body. And over time, the pain will actually start to dissipate. And so it can be scary at first starting to do stuff. I remember doing stuff at first, um, and you know, over time you feel safer and safer to start to do things. And usually throughout treatment, pain will start to dissipate, right? So people feel more comfortable starting to do these movements. And with somatic tracking, we want to bring the pain on a bit so we can be curious and have this light and easy attitude with it. Right. Yeah. You're creating a new, like a new experience and connection with it in the brain that way. Exactly. You're more neuroplastic when you bring it, bring it forward a little bit. 
Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes good, good sense. Good sense. So regarding all of this, um, when you, after like, um, went through this kind of four year downward spiral where things just kept getting worse and worse. And then you kind of found Dr. Sarno and didn't buy into it at first. Then you started buying into it and you started putting the, um, the stuff into practice. You said you were journaling, doing therapy. Um, at this point, as you began buying into it, did you resume your physical activity or were you still taking it more easy on your physical body along the way? Yeah. And so even though it's a good question. So even though after like three months, I was basically pain free, like every once in a while, I would have little uh, blips come up. But like, Mm -hmm. for the most part, it wasn't there. But it took me like, truly, I think I I didn't rush it, right? Because the thing we know this, like the more pressure you put on becoming pain free, the the longer it's going to take, right? Because all the pressure you put on recovery just causes your brain to feel in more danger. And so I, I took a pretty slow approach. Like I think after, you know, six, eight months, like I was starting to work out in the gym again and lift weights and really get back into it. But at first, like I just started to visualize, I would almost do somatic tracking while visualizing doing the exercises because even that can bring up some fear in your body. Right. And so I would start to feel safe as I would visualize doing these exercises And then over time, I remember I started so, it's a funny image, but I remember being like in my kitchen and I would practice doing almost like shoulder press, but with like soup cans. So there was like no weight, right? But I was just practicing the movements as I was kind of observing the sensations and giving my brain messages of safety that, you know, I'm okay to do these movements. Like I'm safe to move my arms. Like there's nothing wrong here. And doing that, like it took a while, but as I did that, I felt more and more comfortable to start gradually allowing myself to do movements and, and activity. And truly, like, again, like I'm very active uh, in my day to day life now, right? Um, which I wish for everyone, like, it's not just about getting rid of the pain sensations, but it's being able to use your body in the way that you want to. Right. Yeah, exactly. Not, you don't, I mean, I mean, I guess everyone's different. Like some people might be like, I just want to get out of pain, but I'm like, I'm like you, I, I had a, a really active background. So I'm like, yeah. I don't want to just get out of pain. I want to be super freaking resilient and functional. And I want to be able to do all the badass things I used to do. Like I want to, you know, move my body in fun ways and lift weights and run and yeah. jump and hop and skip. <laughs> so. Um, how being somebody that was so active, how did you kind of help yourself through this six to eight process of, because I'm sure there was probably some like, um, feeling inside, like eagerness to get back to it and the old, those kind of old, like pressure patterns. And I know you said to, you know, you needed to avoid the pressure. So how did you kind of help support yourself to know when it was time to like step up on your activity level? Like for anyone out there who is listening, maybe they just are like, I don't know when it's ready. I don't know the difference between pushing too much or not challenging myself enough. Like how can I discern what is the right, like, you know, volume or um, increase in my physical capacity along the way that still is supportive? Yeah. And that's like a hard, a hard thing to kind of figure out. And to be honest, everyone's a little bit different now, right? Yeah. So like what I always tell people is, you know, if the pain is neuroplastic, you know, you're, you, no one recovers usually without having a setback here and there. Right. 
And setbacks are just part of it where the pain kind of returns. I had, you know, quite a few of them in, in especially that three months as I gradually became more pain-free, like all of a sudden the pain would come back with a vengeance, right? And sometimes that did happen when I would try to do a bit more. And all of a sudden, like I would feel like immense pain in my shoulders the next day, right? But during those setbacks, you know, that's the thing is, as we're doing this, you know, we're, there's no way to avoid the setback. And so it's kind of getting that out of our head and allowing ourselves to just slowly start to do the exercise. If you have a setback, okay, just slow down for a day, help yourself feel safe, and then slowly start to do it again, right? But I think the difficult part is there is a lot of fear associated with the movement. And, you know, for myself, like, I think, you know, lots of people in this community, you know, we have those common personality traits, right, uh, that are really associated. I know Dr. Sarno identified them, but even nowadays we talk about them, right? Like perfectionism, anxiousness, conscientiousness, and people pleasing. And I have all of these without a doubt. Like I have all of these personality traits and can be a little bit intense in the way I do things, even with physical exercise. And so early on for myself, like I had to really change that attitude. Like I was just going to approach exercise and physical activity in kind of this light and easy way. I was going to take the pressure off, right? I'm not in a rush to get anywhere and I'll just slowly start to do more. And if I can do more in a week than I did could the previous week, that's great. That's wonderful, right? It doesn't need to be this intense thing. And I think that's the difficult part is you know, with these personality traits, like we tend to be very intense, you know, high pressure, high achieving people sometimes. But I had to really remove that as I started to do the exercise, which really helped me just feel safe and take my time doing it. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's so good that you pointed out, like, to kind of shift our perspective around quote unquote setbacks. Like if, or, you know, when it flares up again, it's like, you thought you were good. You did something, no worries. Like don't create that. Don't freak out for, and have that send that message of fear. Just yeah. be like, don't beat yourself up. Just, okay, this is just a part of the experience and I'm going to come back even stronger next time. I'm just learning my limits right now. But also important, I think to like, not get in this mindset that is like, oh my God, I'm never going to be able to do what I used to. I'm never going to be as strong as I was. I'm never going to be fast again, you know, because sometimes yeah. you can get these setbacks and then you start to literally think that this is your, like, this is it. You're like, this is what yeah. you're destined for. Cause yeah. every time, every time you try to do anything more, it feels like you feel defeated. So being able to keep your mindset, um, positive, yeah. and not take on those false fearful stories totally and that's hard right because so hard <laughs> yeah, really like it, we're talking about it uh and I, and by no means do I, I make it want to sound easy because it it is difficult because not only was my brain and everyone's brain like learning to be in chronic pain over time right because our brain is good at learning things but it also learns to just fear these sensations and be preoccupied by them right and so when we have a setback, all of a sudden those fear thoughts just come flooding back around it. And I always tell people it's more important what you do during a setback than what you do when there's no pain. It really is because when there's a setback, if we can just help our brain feel safe, right? Like this is only temporary, like it's going to pass. Like I know my brain's just slowly unlearning being in pain and it's a bit of a process. Like just telling yourself stuff to move towards safety because naturally then the setback won't last forever, right? right. Um, 
and, and can actually dissipate quite quickly uh, once we actually learn that we just need to move away from the fear and preoccupation, just help ourselves feel safe. Yeah. And so like, not to like say, not to, to tell the story and make it your reality that uh, like, oh, I'm going to have setbacks kind of thing, but just be like, you know what? they are a normal part of the process and they might happen and that's going to be okay. I think a lot of us don't know this information. And then when it does happen, we feel like yeah. I did something wrong. Oh, I made it worse. Like we think, yeah. we think we, you know, read like we're back at square one, all yeah, these yeah. thoughts that we're not alone in. Cause we all feel, end up feeling yeah. them. And yeah. And, and that's the thing is, is no one I've worked with has not had, a, you know, gone this whole process without having a setback. And even for myself, and I, I empathize because, you know, when we have a setback, the normal re response is panic. And you're not going to really avoid that step. Like there is going to be a bit of panic when all of a sudden the pain increases. And that even happens for me because every once in a while, you know, my pain will just come back. And, you know, sometimes it's only for a week. It's never for long. But even for myself, and I teach this stuff to people and, you know, there's panic at first. There, there, of course, is panic. I'm like, oh, my goodness, is it coming back? Is this it? Right. And it's just moving, moving towards safety and, and feeling calm in the body. And as I calm down, then you can just start to be more observant. You start to realize, you know, this, this is likely neuroplastic again, neuroplastic again. I'm okay. And as a result, setbacks, you know, even when I have them, they may last a day or two compared to you know four years like originally when the pain came on right okay so speaking of that four years ago when the pain came on uh yeah. versus like it kind of as you're calling it a setback um pain kind of redeveloping or yeah. uh i know um I know sometimes in your experience also, you might start with like pain in one area and then it like shifts or moves or transforms. Mm -hmm. um, wh what are some like, so we know these, like, we know that like, well, it's interesting because in your situation, it, it could have been very plausible and very believable that you had a quote unquote overuse injury or that you literally did physiologically injure yourself because you were doing a lot of activity. Yeah. But as it turns out, that wasn't necessarily the case. But what are, and we, we talked about um, maybe you were physiologically injured and then it, uh, TMS kind of manifested within that injury, what are some other ways that it can also like neuroplastic pain can also develop other than um, just like onset or through injury? Yeah. yeah. And so this is a good question. Like, you know, I, you know, I got training from um, like Alan Gordon's organization. Right. And so I, I kind of understand that there's, there's kind of four main ways that it can develop. And, you know, none of these are exclusive paths. Like sometimes we have multiple things going on that really led us to having this mind-body concern happen. Um, but it's important to remember that all four that I kind of mentioned, they all, in, they all occur in an environment of fear, right? And so, of course, the first one that we talked about was an initial injury, that this does happen. Like people injure themselves. And then what happens is the body heals, but we have to realize that our brain maintains those neural networks, right? And so long after a body, the body part has healed, the brain maintains that neural network in the brain. 
And then fear and other emotions, heavy emotions can basically hijack that and continue to produce that pain sensation long, long past the typical time of healing. So that's, that's one way. Um, the second way that we kind of briefly mentioned is really like a perceived injury or a strong belief that the body's damaged. And we know this to be the case, right? Like if you believe that you've damaged your body or you believe that something is injured or something is abnormal in your body and you should be in pain, that pain will be generated just based off that belief, right? And, you know, every woman in chronic pain kind of has one main fear that, you know, there's something wrong with my body that's causing this. But we know that that belief and when we get fearful and preoccupied that there is something wrong in our body, that pain sensations can be generated, amplified, uh, and maintained even when there's nothing actually structurally wrong. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the second way that takes place. Does that, does, uh, you know that when people are like, oh, they're ones who are fearful, they're going to get a certain physical, like a bad knee because they're bad knees run in the family kind of thing, you know, like, oh, well, my mom had arthritis, so I'm going to get it too kind of thing is, does that fall into category two where they just have this strong belief that, that that's their destiny? Or is that another one that you're still no, going to tell that's, me? That's exactly it. Okay. I see that a lot where, you know, just maybe the culture in the home, right? Uh, is that, you know, maybe a parent of theirs talked about always having a bad back and, you know, I've even had clients say like, you know, my, my parents told me I was going to have a bad back, right? So there's all these belief around it. Mm-hmm. And so that in itself, especially uh, when you start to include some stress in life, can just start to generate those pain sensations, right? Gotcha. Uh, and we know this, there, there's that, that study, I know I'm getting off track here, but there's that study that was done. I, it's not actually called the hairdryer study. Um, But that's how I kind of talk about it with people. And what they did is basically they hooked people up to this machine, put electrodes all over their head, right? And they told them that electrical current would go through their head, causing a temporary headache. So this was the experiment they set up. But the thing is, is the machine was fake. And so it was actually one of those old hair dryers. And so it actually did nothing, but they sold it. They had like a shock generator button that... uh, a speaker that made a humming noise and it wasn't like a few people had a headache like 50 percent, i think actually developed a headache and so again it's that belief right they believed that there was going to be an injury that occurred to the body and that was enough to produce pain so that's that second category and how that takes place gotcha that's a good example i like it thank yeah. you yeah and then the third which i think is the most common is stressful situations And this is definitely the way um, that mind developed. But most people can think back, especially when they're getting into this mind-body world, and they can correlate that their chronic pain started during a stressful time in their life. And, you know, this could be lots of different things. It doesn't even need to be negative stress. It can be positive stress. Uh, It can be like having a baby, getting married, uh, going to university, getting a new job. It could be a death in the family or a family member becoming ill. Um, a common one that I see nowadays is COVID-19, right? All the stressors that come with that. And so what happens is when a stressful situation occurs, right? The brain starts to feel in emotional danger. And when the brain feels an emotional danger, it makes it more likely to start to misinterpret things coming up, signals coming up from the body. 
As a result, then pain sensations start to be produced. And so again, it's just the environment of fear. And so stressful situations, they cause us to feel an emotional danger. And I tell people like having a physical reaction to your emotions is just part of being a human being, right? We can't get away from that. It's just some of us have more extreme extreme or more extreme way that this comes out, right? And so stressful situations is one and tied into stressful situations is really like trauma, right? And so trauma can really produce very significant, intense neuroplastic pain symptoms, right? Because trauma causes your brain to feel in such a level of emotional danger that really significant uh, pain sensations can start to be produced. So that's kind of the third way that neuroplastic pain can develop. Um, and then the last way, the, the fourth way, we kind of call it just like a gradual onset. And so gradual onset, this is kind of like the other category. So you, you may not have fit perfectly in the, the first three that I mentioned, but a gradual onset, what happens is, and what I see a lot of times as people kind of age and go into adulthood, stress just slowly builds in life. And as the stress slowly builds, all of a sudden physical symptoms slowly start to build as well. And so this is kind of a pathway that sometimes it takes place as well. And I talked about those common personality traits. And sometimes that occurs, not just with gradual onset, but, but with all kind of all four of the ways that it develops. But, you know, if you're a perfectionistic, conscientious, people pleasing, or anxious, and you're prone to worrying a lot or being self-critical or putting pressure on yourself, and you do that your whole life, you know, it may not be that your brain feels constantly in extreme danger, but it always feels slightly in danger because you're always putting pressure on yourself. And that builds up over time and can start to have physical symptoms start to be produced. So those are kind of the four ways. Mm, I love this. I've never heard all these explanations or like these variations before. So this is awesome. Yeah. Okay. So these are the four things we got going on. Yeah. And then, okay. Something I also wanted to ask is you mentioned a lot about, we talked a lot already about the power of creating safety yeah and this is so evident because when you look at all four of these um ways that neuroplastic pain mostly develops uh there's a, a key theme here the brain feels in danger <laughs> so oh, yeah. safety is huge but aside from safety you know also looking into okay most of these common characteristics that Dr. Sarno discovered, like you already said, um, with perfectionism and yeah. uh, people pleasing and all this stuff. Um, so to kind of balance that out, what are other really important factors that play a key role to recovery um, and healing aside from the, the feeling of safety? Yeah. So aside from the feeling of safety, um, I find, well, kind of because you mentioned those, those personality traits, right? And these are, these are harder things to change, right? Because, it, you know, I always tell people, I'm not going to change your whole personality. That's, that's, not, that's not possible, right? Like I'm still, I still can be perfectionistic, right? But some of the factors are just like lowering the alert level that we live our life with, right? And so part of that can be like actually just slowing down, right? And not just, you know, being light and easy with our pain, but more in life. Like when we talk about even something as simple as like incorporating like fun into your life, it sounds like such a small thing, but, 
and again, I, I'm sorry, all my stuff ties back to safety, but like even having fun, like that's such an important state for our brain to have happen for us, right? And so some of that is really vital in, in people slowly recovering. Um, and the other thing I wanted to mention is just around, you know, emotions, right? And I tell people like, I'm not in the habit of changing people's emotional state necessarily. Um, you know, people are going to feel stressed. People are going to feel heavy emotions sometimes in their life. And, you know, working with that a bit and helping people, you know, work with heavy emotions and feel safe with them, but also potentially even process trauma can be really vital in terms of like long-term recovery, right? Because, you know, if we can actually experience our emotions in our body, allow them to be there, be able to approach them, be able to give ourselves, you know, a sense of safety as we feel them in our body, validate the emotion and give ourselves kindness, right? Um, having self-compassion for the emotions that we experience, like that will be more helpful in the long run than just trying to get rid of the difficult emotions that someone's facing. Mm, okay. Yes. Kindness and compassion. Yeah. So important. <laughs> yeah, really is, and, yeah. and often if you're probably like the type A perfectionist yeah. kind of people pleasing person, you weren't really probably that great at self kindness and compassion. No, no, probably not. <laughs> Quite opposite. Yeah. My, myself included in that. Yeah. <laughs> S- same. That's how I can say it. Yeah. <laughs> Very <Yeah>. familiar. <laughs> um, so you said to just kind of lower the alert level. And I wonder if in your experience and in your opinion, um, do you feel it's possible for somebody who goes through this mind-body type of syndromes and pains, do you see them often go back to totally living the life they used to pain-free? Or do you see more often that there's a shift in how someone lives their life um, after they go through this uh, process, although be it for the better? Yeah, and that's a, that's a good question, right? Because, you know, potentially the way we were living life for a lot of people had something majorly to do with the symptoms coming on in the first place, right? Yeah. And so a lot of times changes need to be made. Now, the level of change is, you know, different person to person, right? Some people need to make major changes. Um, some people can actually just lower the alert level and still do lots of the same things that they're doing. So it depends person to person, right? Mm-hmm. I find if people here, here's what happens often is actually sometimes when I'm working with people, their pain will dissipate very quickly, right? Uh, it does happen sometimes, but then they don't actually have the motivation to change anything in terms of how they're living their life, Right. And as a result, what can happen is, you know, further on down the road, if they're still doing all these high alert behaviors, right, they're still criticizing themselves, pressure, they're, they're worrying lots, they're, they're just living life kind of at high speed, we'll start to creep back, right? Right. And I, and I speak to that from experience, right? Because I think I was probably out of pain. um, uh, At the time, it was probably like four years so I've been four years primarily out of pain and then some stressful things happened. Like I remember my daughter was born very premature. Um, and so I was like going to the NICU every day. And I remember 
you know, and, and at work at the time, I was putting lots of pressure on myself and I was being kind of critical that I wasn't doing kind of a better job managing, you know, a really difficult situation with going to the NICU. Basically, I would go to the NICU at 4 a.m. in the morning, hang out with my daughter for two hours, then go to work and then come home and take care of um, my son, who was a toddler at the time. Right. And so, you know, stress built and I just like took off in terms of criticism and pressure. And of course, you know, all of a sudden this was kind of my biggest setback that just came on is my leg just started to hurt again. And I knew it was neuroplastic, right? But, and it lasted for quite a while. It was probably like three or four weeks. It was, it was a long time. And what had happened is, you know, those personality traits kind of took over again, right? I all of a sudden started to live life very intensely, which caused my brain to just feel unsafe. And so, you know, naturally, as I started to move and, and calm my nervous system and, and reduce the pressure I was putting on myself, the pain, the pain subsided quite quickly as after I started doing that. And I did a lot of compassion for myself at the time. So I think you're right. There, there is changes that do probably have to happen for lots of people, you know, if they're living life kind of in this high alert state all the time. Right. Yeah, exactly. Now, as far as like activity levels and all that, do you feel uh, through your own experience and what you've seen that it is possible if people are shifting how they approach life so that they do lower the um, intensity, lower the alert level, do you find that people can at least regain full capacity of their physical vitality in the sense of being able to like, as long as you are managing your overall um, stress levels and stress input and having and creating balance, are you able to do a level of physical activity that is like um, suitable for you, that brings you joy, that is fulfilling? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. I think, you know, truly, I, I do believe there is hope in that. And I've seen that. Uh, with people I work with. And I know that's the case with myself. Now, of course, I don't, you know, do activity in the same way. I'm not maybe as intense and pressureful and achievement oriented in that regard. But that being said, you know, I do anything that I want with my body, right? And uh, for the majority of the time, there's, there's no pain. And I think that is a possibility for people, right? I think people can get there. And I think having hope in that can be very healing in itself. As long as, you know, people don't start to pressure themselves to get there and and do everything. So I'm always careful in that regard because hope can turn to pressure real quick sometimes. Um, But I I do believe, and that's my goal when I work with people, right, is I I do want them to be able to use their body the way they want um, and get back there and and be able to be pain-free or have great reductions in pain while being able to do the activities that, that they really enjoy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that yeah. makes so much sense. I really love how you said that hope can turn to pressure really fast because yeah. that is definitely the truth. <laughs> yeah, that really is the truth. And I've learned the hard way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As many of us do. And I, I mean, it's been such a process for me, like of, of finding that balance and finding that right, you know, like how much is too much and, and something maybe it helps for people listening that really helps me lately even that I've been really like focused on is it's that curiosity. So when I see myself having an urge to do something that's like physical or that would be physically taxing, I really step back and I try to get super curious and I try to see where the urge is coming from because something that I'm learning is, um, 
is that sometimes the urge is coming from a place that isn't really aligned to my true self and my true nature. It's coming from fears and insecurities that I don't want to keep feeding. So sometimes I might feel like I need to go do certain exercise, but I realize, oh, you know what? You looked in the mirror earlier and you thought you looked a little like flabby or you thought you looked a little like thick and you didn't like what you saw. And so you're putting this pressure on yourself to go do something to get somewhere versus Sometimes when I'm curious, I notice that I'm just really craving, even at a physical level, the sensation of what it feels like to sometimes exercise or move your body or get your heart rate up a little and, and, um, and you're breathing up a little when it's actually like, uh, planned, you know, not cause you're stressed and holding your breath, if you will. And I'll notice the difference in, in that, uh, driving force. And when I say yes to what actually feels like a really, um, authentic craving versus noticing when it's just that urge to fulfill that insecurity. And I say, no, yeah. you know what? I, this is such a practice for me to just love where I'm at. And you said it way earlier, like to know that there's not a rush to get somewhere, even in regaining your old physical state. Totally. And you bring up, and that's, that was beautifully said because you're right. And and I think for myself, like, you know, I've had body image issues throughout my life and you can think about the level of pressure that that can build, right? Right. In terms of physical exercise. And I remember in my early 20s, I was, you know, even before I was preoccupied by my pain, I was preoccupied by all sorts of things. And oftentimes it was like body image. And like, I remember I was super into bodybuilding, spending excessive amounts of time doing that, right? And, you know, I couldn't move back to doing that again. And to be honest, every time that I move in that direction, my body gives me a sign that, you know, I'm not doing this for the right reason. I remember... A couple of years ago, I remember I was, I had this, I, I don't know how I got into this obsession. I was like, I want to really get into vegan bodybuilding. I know it sounds like such a, an odd place to get into, but I, I just, I just, you know, again, in, in a preoccupied nature, became obsessed with this idea. And I, I had been working out lots. And as I started to do it from that lens of like pressure and intensity, and it was like this, achievements and making sure other people it was from an insecure place kind of like you're talking about right and you know the pain all of a sudden my arms started to hurt just like they did years earlier right and you know as soon as i took that pressure off i stopped putting all this intense amount of goals and i need to achieve something then quickly within a couple of days it dissipated right and so you're right it's a good place to understand that you know, if, you, if you're doing it from a place of pressure and insecurity and this perfectionistic lens, like it just, it causes our brain to feel in danger and it's going to start to produce physical symptoms. Yeah. And when you think about it, how they always say, I mean, that really is your brain literally looking out for you because it's like warning signs. She's about to go down that road again and that doesn't feel good. So we're going to just redirect her right now. Totally. totally. Yeah. So it's almost like in some regard, the pain sometimes comes on as like a protection mechanism, like to help keep us aligned, to not, to I mean, yes, it's like pressure and all that other stuff, but it like helps us to not go down that path again that we've, it's like, no, we've been there and that didn't do us any good. Yes. And that's, you're, you're totally right in saying that, right? Like 
our brain doesn't do anything to not protect us. We may not like the way it protects us sometimes, right? But, you know, when when the pain starts to come on, I always tell people when the setback starts to come on, like, take it as a signal. Like, what what's going on that needs to be changed? You know, what what needs to be dealt with right now? Instead of taking it as like something's wrong with the body. Right. And so it's, it's an important way to think about it, right? Because... I know for myself, like if I start to put too much pressure on myself, my brain will start to feel an emotional danger and I'll start to get physical symptoms. And so that's a clear sign that, you know what, I need to dial this back right now. Like clearly my brain doesn't feel safe right now if I keep pushing it this way, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and so I think at the end of the day, at least in my experience, it really is always helping me to redirect to my truth. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's totally true. Time just goes by so fast when you're having fun conversations. I know, I know. <laughs> and this has been so thorough and we've learned so much today. Um, okay. Maybe you tell me, is this too loaded of a question or is there a good general idea or explanation of what pain reprocessing therapy is? Because you mentioned it very early on and I'd yeah. love for everyone listening to just have an idea of like, well, what is, what is that? Totally. And I can give you like a, a really quick, <clears throat> a really quick rundown of it. Okay. Okay. Um, Perfect. So, you know, pain reprocessing therapy, which obviously is getting a lot of um, like media press and stuff right now because of that big study that came out on it. Um, they really just show that it, it's really an effective way to greatly reduce or eliminate pain symptoms. Right. And so pain reprocessing therapy, like in a nutshell, it's just a, site, a system of psychological techniques that basically helps retrain your brain to begin interpreting signals from your body properly, which typically ends the cycle of chronic pain. So it's kind of like a two-pronged approach in this way. And we've talked about this lots today. The first step is really to reduce the fear of the pain and to start viewing the sensations through a lens of safety. So at first early on, it's really looking for evidence, helping the logical parts of our brain understand like this makes sense. Like it's, I start to believe that I have neuroplastic pain. And then we do the somatic trackings I talked about in this step to really help people start to reduce the fear of the sensations and to feel safe with the sensations in their body, right? That's kind of the first prong. The second prong is really to reduce fear in general and to start experiencing, I always say like experiencing emotions through a lens of safety. So this could be just like we just talked about reducing high alert behaviors. This could be as simple as actually feeling safe in your body to experience emotions. And so I always tell people, you know, with the somatic tracking, we do that for pain, but you can also do that very similarly with like the sensations of emotions in our body and actually allowing and feeling safe with those. And, you know, that's kind of a, a quick breakdown of what pain reprocessing therapy can kind of look like. Okay. Do you feel, because I know even you did this at the beginning, and it is something that's um, widely talked about in the TMS and mind-body uh, world, but do you feel that for everybody it is necessary to do things like journaling or have therapy or address the emotions, or do you feel like sometimes just turning down the alert system is enough? Yeah, you're, you're right. Everyone, everyone's a little bit different, right? Um, because, you know, in that, in that pain reprocessing therapy study, right? Like they did nine sessions and two thirds of people became pain-free or nearly pain-free, right? I think it was 66%. And so, you know, some, 
those some of those people, you know, it was enough to just do some of the pain reprocessing therapy stuff. For some people, like early on when I'm working with someone, sometimes they come once or twice and just like the idea of it and just the fact that they felt safer with the sensations was enough for the sensations to completely dissipate, right? So everyone's a little bit different, right? Like it's kind of with Dr. Sarno, like the book cure, right? Like people would read the book and a very small um, percentage of people would just completely get better, right? Mm -hmm. And so it, it's different for for each person. I think that's because, you know, neuroplastic pain can develop in different ways for people, right? Like if someone has a lot of trauma, like sometimes that needs to be processed for the symptoms to start to subside. Not for everyone, but sometimes that's the case, right? Right. I mean, so it really ultimately is not a one size fits all. Yeah, that's totally it. Yeah. I had the book here, but then I got it all. I got, I got it back in different yeah, I, ways later on. Yeah. <laughs> but... You know, the the book did the, the book did a lot for me at first. Literally. I had surgery scheduled and I read that book and I was like, Oh hell no, this is me written on every page, like so many of us. Yeah. I canceled surgery and I started crossfitting. I was like, I'm doing life and I just went for it. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was yeah. years before I started feeling like other stuff show up again, you know, but, and then of course, it, you know, it's so funny how fast it comes back and tricks y'all over again. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Oh. All right. Uh, Tanner, I have one last question before we get into, uh, how to contact you and connect with you and all that good stuff. Yeah. So I ask everybody this question, which is basically if you were told that you could only share one message for the rest of your life, uh, what would it be? If I had one message, I think it really just ties to, to in terms of, of safety that we talked about today. And I think it's such an important thing to think about is, is truly that, you know, each of us deserves to feel like emotionally safe, right? And that that's such a goal that everyone should work towards. And it, it has so many levels to it, as we've talked about today. But even, you know, for myself, and I think this is such an important message just with the way our society is, is, you know, of course, like success is important to me, but is it important to be successful more than it is to feel safe, safe in my body, um, safe with what's going on in life? And sometimes that can trick me, but for the most part, the answer is no. Like, of course, it's, it's so important to have that sense of safety in life. And, you know, oftentimes I think when you talked about, you know, like our true self and moving away from that, right. Cause not being our authentic self, um, and, and we get steered away from that sometimes in life can really bring on these symptoms as well. And so actually, you know, feeling safe, even just to be yourself, regardless of, you know, what others might think, regardless of what, um, the potential consequences in society might be. Um, can be so healing in itself, I think. Love it. Thank you. Yeah. And how can people connect with you? Yeah, so I have um, I have a website uh, called uh, the the website is painpsychotherapy.ca um, where myself and the other clinician I work with um, offer pain reprocessing therapy and kind of mind body approaches. Um, and so you can also email me, um, 
It's tanner at painpsychotherapy.ca, which I know is a bit of a mouthful. I don't know if you're going to maybe put it on. on I'll have everything on the show notes. Yeah, I was like, sell it out. I was like, this is going to be. And yeah, and then I have uh, an Instagram account that I I post on pretty regularly, um, which is just pain psychotherapy. And yeah, we've been doing some YouTube videos and and playing around with that just to offer like free information to people. Um, And like the YouTube channel is just Tanner Murtaugh. So yeah, those are all the different ways to get a hold of me. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, this has been so wonderful. I have not had anyone come on in a hot minute and talk about mind body syndrome. And this was so in depth and informative and I love it. I love today. I learned, I know that people who are listening are going to learn. So thank you so much for, um, meeting with me today and sharing your experience and the wisdom that you've gained along the way with me and my listeners. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, yeah, it's been very lovely to, uh, to have this conversation with you. Yay. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and maybe learned something new that can in some way support you on your journey. There are links in the show notes to the various ways to connect with Tanner, as well as the sample somatic tracking video that I mentioned earlier in the intro. Please remember to be your own experiment. Explore the variety of somatic experiences and see what really supports you because at the end of the day, you are your own expert. So have fun and until next time, as always, make this week great.